once we started thinking about information as a diet, it allowed us to consume junk food as well as good food. I know that I have to eat mostly greens, not too much, and that allows me to stay healthy. That also means that every now and again I can go out and eat a burger or eat a bit of junk food because it's not going to do overwhelming damage to my system if I've got some of the healthy stuff. So with information, it's not that I inoculate myself completely from bad news, but I also counteract them with some good greens, with some good news from around the world, and that gives me a much more balanced diet of information, and that makes me able to exist in a world where I'm not spiraling downwards and where I feel like I can take action. Hello everyone, my name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers, or experts in influence, or people who have either insights or access to an epic world of influence, to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Now, we all live in a digital world. That's not news, especially to the those of us who woke up this morning with our mobile phones glued either to our ears or our hands. But in this world, three quarters of adults now have a device that we spend on average 8.5 hours a day attached to. That's nine to 10 hours for teenagers, which is a whole different, whole different podcast. With this, with this rise of digitization, we've, we've entered a world where our attention has become the primary currency. I'm going to say that again. Our attention is now the primary currency. Some of the largest organizations in the world are now focused purely on buying, earning, and trading, i.e. selling, our attention as their only product. Algorithms are being constantly written and rewritten on a minute-by-minute -minute basis to pull us further and further into silos of information, which then lead on to the next silo of information and the next, and so on. Now, in and of itself, none of that is either good nor bad. But it does raise a very interesting question, and that is this. What actually works when it comes to winning the war of attention? Huge companies are asking this question now. I interviewed Ben Jones. You can find that podcast a couple of months ago. Ben Jones is the head of Unskippable Labs at Google. Now, Google own YouTube. YouTube is the container for five billion videos that gets uploaded on a daily basis. And the remit of Ben and his team on behalf of Google was purely to look at those five billion hours a day and figure out what gets, keeps, and importantly, loses our attention. What makes something unskippable? Now, if Google are putting those kind of resources into answering this question, that shows you where this sits on the priority list for global business right now. Now, they discovered some incredible things. Go have a listen. It's amazing about storytelling, online, product placement. But the answer, the answer to the question, the real answer, as always with human beings, involves getting really, really primal. If you look at what drives our most basic operating system, it's fear and survival. Possible dangers and threats will always get our attention before good news, opportunities or reasons to celebrate. Now, unfortunately, as the majority of media and advertisers have always known, when it comes to using fear, drama or outrage as a tool, we are hardwired to stand to attention. A, a friend explained it to me in a really simple way once. They said, if you were a caveman or woman and you were walking across a field, if you accidentally stood on a beautiful flower, no big deal, right? But if you accidentally stood on a poisonous snake, curtains for you. So threats are going to get our attention 10 times out of 10. We are hardwired for it. We will notice that before we notice anything, anything good in the world. My next guests would call this use of fear as a tool to influence and gain our attention a mind virus. And they would say that it is as dangerous a virus as any other virus we have ever seen. So how do you inoculate yourself? How do we pull back some of our most precious resource so we can use it instead to create, not from fear, but from a place of optimism, hope, and resilience? 
Because let's face it, regardless of how you feel about some of the world's largest question marks right now, AI, digitization, immigration, changes in the workforce, the impact of social media on children, reactions that come from fear are rarely, rarely ever the solution. In this episode, we are going to dive into the radical act of optimism, and it is a radical act, as we spend time with the incredible Dr. Angus Harvey and Tane Hunter, from, who are the co-founders of Future Crunch. Who are Future Crunch? Well, Future Crunch are a global movement of scientists, artists, technologists, and entrepreneurs who believe that science and technology are creating a world that is, in fact, more peaceful, transparent, and abundant than it has ever been. And the facts that back this up are just, they are irrefutable. Now, they use these facts at the heart of everything that they talk about. They talk about these facts being sacred. And their mission is to foster intelligent and optimistic thinking about the future using these facts. The reason they do that is to assist us all in reframing how we allow fear and negativity to influence us and even more significantly, influence the world in which we live. In this fascinating conversation, we discuss our consumption of information, viewing it the same way we would view a diet, where balance and conscious choice, conscious consumption, is the key to health, from being able to create from a resilient place. Why the evidence and facts must always be sacred if you really want to drive epic influence. The implications of a world driven by bad news and the mind virus of fear. Why storytelling, you know I love storytelling, is the most powerful tool to evolve humanity. The influence of optimistic thinking and overcoming the neuroscience of negativity, that hard wiring for negativity. And why some media, reality TV, I'm talking to you, should come with a smoker's warning. I loved that. So... That was a lot of words. Get ready for a dose of optimism based on cold, hard facts. Facts you can tell and retell to reframe the, the narrative of fear wherever and whenever you find it. Significantly, this is an opportunity to become more conscious about the news that we share and the news that we choose to consume. Stepping back just far enough from drama, fear and outrage to recognize it as simply that a tool that is used to capture our attention. So, enough of me. Please sit back and enjoy my conversation with the double dose of my latest brains crush, Dr. Angus Harvey and Tane Hunter, otherwise known as Future Crunch. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Angus Harvey and Tane Hunter. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks, Judy. Nice to be here. You're welcome. You're welcome. I get to, we get to do this one in person. <laughs> much better. Which is fantastic. I love, I love doing them in person. So I'm going to kick this off the way that I always kick off the podcast, which is with the question, do you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert? And for frequent listeners of the podcast, will have heard me explain this question a thousand times but essentially it's really just because out there in the world I feel like I have one conversation over and over and over again and it's that you can't own your voice you can't start a movement you can't stand up and be seen or heard unless you're an extrovert only extroverts would do that and so I'm doing a bit of a social experiment just with the people that I have as a captive audience so introvert extrovert neither both I think definitely both, and I think most people lie along a spectrum. For example, you know, finishing up my PhD, that's very introverted. I'm locked away and hang out with very few people during that time, but then also public speakers, so that's quite extro extroverted. Um, I think I used to have a debilitating form of social anxiety, which really, yeah, I just couldn't really function in social settings. And so I did some immersion therapy. I actually did seven years of hospitality uh, in the wine industry and yeah, eventually managed restaurants. And so it actually forced me to have to confront that fear and you have to go directly at a problem. Even though people might be upset, you still have to engage with them. And I think that really helped me um, develop those skills. So I think it's something that's elastic and can be developed as well. And was that a conscious choice to develop? The reason I ask is that she's 
talking to a neuroscientist yesterday, funnily enough, and he was saying that one of the, the tactics that he recommends is putting yourself in an environment where you grow certain neurons consciously. So was it a conscious choice to do that or just a happy accident? No, not at the time. I was actually just got done from uh, a long boat trip on the ocean, but I was poor as in New Zealand, so I had to do something. So I lied my way into my first <laughs> waiting job as a table set. Yeah, I have heaps of experience in the United States, but yeah. So is that a necessity? I actually think it, it, it morphs and changes through time. I've been introverted and extroverted at various different points in my life. Interestingly enough, I'm actually going through a bit of an introverted stage at the moment. Um, I'm finding myself to be far less confident and engaged socially than I was even three or four years ago. Uh, I think where that's happened to me in the past, that was always a little bit terrifying. Uh, I feel like I'm probably a bit more accepting of it now, going, oh yeah, this is a, an introversion phase. Um, and trying to just enjoy that, uh, knowing that it'll change um, over time going forward. It's one of the, the benefits of getting older. <laughs> I think if you go through enough seasons, you start to recognize exactly. them as seasons. Yeah. You're like, oh, and not that forever. Yeah. Mm. And after that, there will be another. And mm. after that, there will be another. I mm. know oh, there's a depression front coming in. <laughs> I have to weather it out. <laughs> there's the lightning. <laughs> now, j still on that topic, a quote that I found, um, I believe it was from, from the both of you, said the neuroscience community has never accepted the idea of left dominant or right dominant personality types, which is kind of what we're talking about, extrovert, introvert. introvert. It's given us, so that, that belief system has given us a society with far too many accountants repressing their inner acrobats and far too many ballerinas that should have been biologists. Mm. And so you feel that the very idea of putting people into those two boxes is kind of inherently dangerous anyway. Yeah, I think it's very easy for humans to, you know, approach a binary situation. It helps us understand, and it's a good storytelling tool, but I think it does cause a, cause a lot of problems. Um, you know, in the science world, you're supposed to be, you know, very logic-brained, and that's what they select for. But actually, science, for example, is one of the most creative endeavors. You have to think totally outside the box and ask and answer questions that have never been thought of before. So I think fundamentally stripping creativity out the way they do in our education system, especially in the STEM subjects, is a very dangerous thing because you need both and life definitely involves both skills. Tane and I have this saying, uh, we use it quite a lot, it's a bit of a, a, um, it's a running joke, uh, but there's a bit of truth as there is in all running jokes, um, which is this idea of hashtag choose both. And it actually came out of a conversation that Tane had many years with uh, your dad, I think it was. Yeah, I was actually on the crossroads, a fork in the road, whether I was going to do Future Crunch or finish up my PhD. And unfortunately, I decided to hang out with Future Crunch more. No, he, he came up with this idea. He's like, well, why not hashtag choose both? And I was like, Dad, wow, you're all of a sudden hip. Did he but, actually say those words? Yeah, hashtag he, choose both. He did. It's Cutest pretty good. Yeah, I was like, Dad, incredible. I love you. Yeah, yeah, It's been such an amazing tool because so many times... This happens in business, in life, in your personal relationships, in choosing whether to pursue a certain path or a certain client or, um, you know, you're always faced with these options, these forks in the road. Um, and just having that ability to say, why don't we just hashtag choose both? Uh, it hasn't always necessarily mean we've had to choose both, but it just somehow has made the decision feel a, a lot easier and a lot lighter. It's actually, you've just reminded me there's an artist who's a very close friend of mine and I was going through a difficult patch professionally and personally in my life and I went to go and see her and she has this mosaic clinic and it's just mm. like this little haven of peace. Oh, wow. I know and I walk in and there's old ladies doing mosaics and I used to leave my dog there to hang out for the day and I walked in and, and we had this conversation and, and she said almost exactly the same. She said, what if you could take, because I was saying, I've, you know, I feel this and I also feel this and I feel so conflicted between the two. And she was saying, what if you put both of those words together? What if you could be courageously scared? Yeah. What if you could be, you know, expandedly small? I'm sure those weren't her exact words, but what if you could take both of them and, and create enough room for them both to exist? Mm. And yeah. those are the most remarkable people I know, the ballerinas and biologists and accountants and acrobats. You know, that's not just an example of alliteration. There are people that I know who, who epitomize those values and they don't see that there's a conflict between the two, that the two of those, those two sides of their personalities feed the other side and, and make them a more interesting, more dynamic person. Um, they're the people that I admire and they're the people that I aspire to be. 
Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said about success in the business world, for example, about being able to integrate that complexity, being able to think fine grain, the minutia, and also think big picture, being creative about your solutions, but also being highly disciplined in certain areas. So integrating those complexities, I think, is a really powerful tool. Hashtag choose both. Yeah. Hashtag choose both. Love that. Um, so you both, you, we'll get into the story about how it came to be, but you came together, situations brought you together and you formed Future Crunch. The description I have of Future Crunch is that we're part of a global movement of scientists, artists, technologists and entrepreneurs who believe science and technology are creating a world that is more peaceful, transparent and abundant. Now that's, that's a pretty radical act. You know, given the seemingly rising levels of fear, outrage and drama that seem to get whipped up on a daily basis to choose that as your intention. How did that come about? Where did that thought first germinate from? Well, we did meet at a psychedelic music festival, but that's not actually where it germinated. It was actually (laughs) on a bike ride through rural Victoria um, after we'd been friends for a while. And... Actually, we were both feeling a little down and out. I was struggling through school. And Gus, you know, has a PhD from the London School of Economics, but wanted to work in energy in Australia and couldn't find a job. And so after long conversations on this bike ride over three days, we started talking about the power of science and technology and how, how there are so many incredible um, people in the world going out there and making it a better place using the power of science and technology. And there's so many solutions out there, yet we're only looking at the problems. So how can we develop a, I guess, a, a form of communication to encourage that? So the first job that we decided to do was invite all the people that weren't giving Gus a job and make this incredible presentation and talk about how the world's amazing, but use, you know, keep the evidence sacred, as, right? The, the evidence gold-plated to see if he could um, get a job from them. And it turned out to be pretty successful that it became a job in itself. Yeah, that that didn't work. <laughs> Not but for it, a job. It worked in a different way. <laughs> that was going to be my next question. Yeah. How many job offers? Uh, no job offers. <laughs> um, t- t- Future Crunch was born out of a desire to have an interdisciplinary conversation in a way that was accessible to the public. Um, in the academy, Tane and I both come from the academy. We both have many years of research and academia and publishing and research work behind us. Um, but we thought that the conversation within the academy was stultified, that it was um, arcane, too technical, and it wasn't leaving the ivory tower. Uh, and in the academy, they talk a lot about it, interdisciplinary research. It's very hot. It's very sexy. It's been very popular. Um, we said, what happens if you could do real interdisciplinary conversations between my field, which is social science, economics, social theory, sociology, and Tane's field, which was science, technology, mathematics, um, between the hard sciences and the soft sciences. Um, and Future Crunch was really born from that desire to say, let's have a conversation at the intersection of those two things and see where humanity's headed in the 21st century. With the, with the premise of a more abundant, transparent, peaceful future. Well, if, if you actually through look that at, lens. Yeah, but if you actually look at the research and the data, um, by pretty much any... Th- factor you care to measure, the world is improving. Yet that's not the story that we're told. So we wanted to get the evidence out there, but use storytelling, because storytelling is incredibly a a powerful tool. I can list off percentages and facts to you all day, and you'll probably fall asleep. But if you add emotion and a story around that, hit not only the brain, the head, but also the heart and emotion. And that was our initial goal. How could we get these incredible stories out there? And it's not in an academic setting because it changes your, your life. It changes your perspective because if you only focus on the negativity, that, that is how you feel about the world. Mm. I'm going to go into that just in, in a little bit more depth. But before we do that, I wanted, to, I wanted to go backwards again just to look at how this began because where you've gone with it is incredible. So, Angus, you studied um, deforestation, is that correct? And you went through a difficult period yourself when you you started to realize that a lot of the movements around something you were really passionate about just weren't moving it forward Mm. can you tell me tell me a little bit about what led you there in that place uh i spent a decade in academia researching all sorts of social issues um trade development aid work uh, and i eventually settled on environmental degradation as the the master problem so to speak i thought if if 
if we're going to solve, you know, it, we've got to understand how this all works. And environmental degradation seemed to be the biggest issue. When I finished my PhD, <coughs> you know how when you finish a project and you get to the top of the mountain and suddenly it's empty? Um, you spend so many years working to do this thing and you get to the top of the mountain and then you go, oh my God, I, I don't know what's next. Um, and that combined with having spent so long looking at the negativity and the stories of doom sent me into a spiral of, of despair, really. Um, <coughs> I stopped eating properly. I stopped speaking to the people that love me most. I don't know why we do that when our mental health is so terrible. It is interesting, isn't mm. it? Yeah, the That's people exactly that we should be speaking to the most are the ones that we stop speaking to. I don't know what's up with that. Anyway, it's not a... At a time in your life when you need more connection, mm. you tend to... <coughs> you tend to attract. Um, and then th I was in that space for about 18 months. It was awful. Um... And then I think just when I thought I couldn't go on anymore, I, I read an article by the English journalist George Monbiot, uh, who writes for The Guardian in the UK, and he said that as environmentalists, if we had deliberately uh, set out to put off as many people as possible, we couldn't have done better if we'd tried. Because for 50 years, we've been telling stories of doom and how the forests are dying and the oceans are dying and uh, the ecosystems are collapsing and we're all on a collision course with a climate change time bomb. And those stories have been a really excellent way to get people's attention, but they've been a terrible way to drive action. So I'm just going to stop you there. Why Why do you believe that to be? Because I think, you know, we've, we've all seen that over and over again. You know, we've seen it with famine. We've seen it with war. We've seen it with climate change. We've seen it with animal rights. We've seen it with human rights, where the the drama and the outrage of the situation, quite justly so, gets our attention. But then the overwhelm, of what actually to do about it means that we, and now I'm answering the question for you and I could very well be incorrect, almost that we retract from it. It's too much, it's too overwhelming, it's too hard, it's too big. Is that is that why it doesn't work? Well, I think it's, I mean, it's a neuroscience question, right? It's an yeah. evolutionary tactic that we evolved to actually deal with the world. It's not, it's not that we are flawed, it's that we are designed to stay in groups and, and survive and yeah, it's an evolutionary hangover from our ancestors. I mean, we're biologically attracted to fear and danger because it helps keep you alive. And, you know, in, in the past when we were in a tribal setting, you could deal with the, the small amount of danger or problems that would occur. That's not overwhelming. But now we have a mass torrent from the worst crap everywhere in the globe flooding into us. And it, that really causes us to shut down. When we see something dangerous or negative, you know, the alarm bell, the amygdala goes off in our brain and overrides all the higher functioning parts and you actually just stop thinking rationally. And then we've got other ones like negativity bias, which means um, negative emotions, bad news headlines go straight into long-term memory, where we need much longer exposure to good news, to the positive stories, to really have them sink in. So we like to say our brain is really like Velcro for the bad stuff and like Teflon for the good. And then the other problem is that fear spreads like a virus. So in a world where everyone's connected, when you've got 7.4 billion people and we're all hearing all the news from each other, a single bad story in one part of the world spreads like wildfire throughout the human network, throughout the human family. That didn't used to happen. And so what happens now is that good news doesn't spread because we're not, we're not as interested in that, but bad news spreads everywhere. So every time we pass on a bad news story or we see it in a media headline, it's like that virus infecting more and more and more people. So Future Crunch was an attempt to say, can we be an antibody? Can we be the point at which that virus arrives at our node? And instead of transmitting to other people, we flip it and we say, right, well, hold on, here's some other news that you might not have taken into account. And I was going to ask you about that, that the concept of a mind virus, mm. that fear is essentially a mind virus you know it comes in it replicates we spread it we sneeze it onto somebody else mm. via whatever emotion is the strongest language well yeah. it, you can feel emotion when you walk mm. into a room i mean there's, there's a whole different conversation there but we pick up on other people really easily and now we do it via technology so if if fear is a mind virus and if the stories are kind of the carrier the bad news stories what's the how do you inoculate yourself is probably the best way of asking that question. Is there a way of inoculating yourself against that virus? Is it wise to, inocul to inoculate yourself against the virus completely? 
Well, no, not of course completely. I think if we just thought everything was utopian and great, that would be an issue. Like you, you change your diet. Yeah. I you mean, change your, your information diet. Your information stream, tune the filters and understand the commercial logic that's predicated on fear and inaccurate perceptions of risk that the media and politicians feed us. And I think the way to inoculate yourself is really taking ownership of your information streams. Understand every time you click on a bad news store on Facebook, then it's going to feed you more and more of those bad news stories. If we continue to watch mainstream media that gives us the ba bad news and negativity, we'll get more and more of it. And it's important to remember the confirmation bias too, because as soon as you feel bad about the world and you follow this news and this information, then we actually actively go out and seek more information that confirms that pre-existing notion. And I mean, it even won Daniel Kahneman a Nobel Prize in 2002, this study. Um, this cognitive bias is really important. That's where we get stuck in our bad news bubbles and our filter bubbles. And so I think one way to inoculate yourself is to add more and more good news, changing your view on the planet, and then you'll actually go out and seek out information that confirms that notion as well, rather than just the negativity. So I think confirmation bias is something to be very aware of, because you can reprogram your brain in that way. What the thing that's been really useful for me, and I think you know, for Tane and and friends and family as well, is once we started thinking about information as a diet, <coughs> it allowed us to consume junk food as well as good food. Um, what that meant is, I said, I have in the same way that there is now an abundance of food. We're very fortunate. We live in a 2018 in a developed economy, and for most of us, food is abundant. We can have as much or a little bit as we want. Um, I don't. Even though I can eat as much food as I want, I don't eat junk food all the time. I know that I have to eat mostly greens, not too much, um, and that allows me to stay healthy. That also means that every now and again I can go out and eat a burger or eat a bit of junk food because it's not going to do overwhelming damage to my system if I've got some of the healthy stuff. So with information, it's not that I inoculate myself completely from bad news. I still look at all the bad stuff, you know, the latest headlines, the latest tweets, the um, terrible stuff that's happening in the environment. You know, I look at all those things, but I also counteract them with some good greens, with some good news from around the world. And that gives me a much more balanced diet of information. And that makes me able to exist in a world or, and where I'm not spiraling downwards in my mental health and where I feel like I can take action. So, Tane... I have a quote from you here that said, this mind virus kills our ability to maintain perspective. And it creates a situation where, you know, Ebola makes the news and spreads figuratively and literally, and a doctor's, but a doctor's handwriting doesn't. Can you explain that example? Well, bad doctor's handwriting actually around the world kills more people than Ebola has ever actually. And so it's about, it's about our attraction. Ebola is a scary, dangerous thing, so that's why it makes headlines. We're attracted to that fear that it could spread and dangerous, but something as simple as doctor's handwriting is, is far worse. And so it's, it's about understanding that the stories that we're attracted to trigger something inside of us that, that creates emotion and creates attraction to it. For example, the most dangerous thing that Gus and I have done all day was get into a car. That is by far statistically the worst thing out there. If people are f afraid of terrorism or the criminal behind the corner or to get in an airplane. And you know, 2017 was the safest commercial airline uh, year for commercial airlines, not a single fatality throughout the entire year. And what's interesting is you got in the car to go and do, I know, a presentation this morning yeah. in front of 600 people. So most people would count, no one's ever died from doing a presentation that I know of, but most people would count that as far more terrifying than, than getting in a yeah. car. Some people fear it worse than death. <laughs> so, so again, why is that? Going back a second, why, why are we more obsessed with Ebola? And genuinely, I was too, and Zika virus, and than we are with something that we can actually change, something that's more dangerous. You know, we can do something about doctor's handwriting. It's a, it's a perceivable, changeable problem. Why would we rather spend our attention? Well, I think it, well, first of all, I mean, we can also do something about Ebola, and we've done great things about it. We've reduced that dramatically. Um, yeah, I think the reason we're attracted by it is it goes back to the power of story. You know, people who want to influence create these really highly emotive stories around it. And Ebola, you know, this disease that 
you're bleeding out of your eyes, you know, the sort of the horrid, horrific nature of it versus a doctor scribbling on a piece of paper and maybe overdosing you on a medication or giving you the wrong thing. So I think it's, it's really based on how, how we can visualize it in our brain and see it happening to ourselves. Most people don't think they're going to get a bad doctor's handwriting issue, but they can, f they can see it in their mind about Ebola and spreading. And then we get the virus of the news saying, you know, someone's landed in the United States with Ebola. Everyone's going to die. It's going to be an outbreak. And no one's actually talking about it in a rational way. They're talking about it in an emotive storytelling way, which is great if you're trying to tell the facts and make them sexier and the good news, but it also has the double-edged uh, side of, yeah, promoting populism, um, negative media, and so forth. And I think maybe it's, it might just be worth sort of talking about that, that, you know, that balanced information diet. We are not saying that Ebola is fine. It's terrifying. And we're currently in the middle of a new Ebola outbreak in the DRC. You know, the fact that we're telling the story of Ebola is crucially important because we've got to get people out there. We've got to take action. You know, some incredibly brave reporters have been out there. Amazing people have been doing that work. We're not downplaying the effect of Ebola, which is a horrific disease and has killed thousands of people um, and is genuinely terrifying. But if we're going to tell the stories of Ebola, can we also maybe tell the stories of the workers who've been out there on the front lines and who've, who've been able to get the cure out there, the thousands of volunteers who've taken the vaccines out, the new vaccines, the labs in the United States that have developed the vaccines, the tens of thousands of man and woman hours that have been poured into solving that disease, and can we also then maybe tell some other stories? For example, did you know that Ghana has just eliminated trachoma, which is the leading cause of eye disease globally? In 2000, which was 18 years ago, 1.5 million people in Ghana suffered from that eye disease. It's now become the first country in Africa to eliminate it. Um, Mexico last year became the first country in the Americas to eliminate trachoma. That is an extraordinary good news story we don't hear about that news story in the media. We only hear about the Ebola story. So it's about counteracting the really scary stuff, which should be talked about, with some other stuff and saying, hey, human beings solved a major problem recently. Maybe we could celebrate that as well as looking at what the next problem is. So getting into the nuts and bolts of that, the one of the questions that I had is, whose responsibility is this? Is it the media's responsibility? Is it regulator's responsibility? Or probably... More sensibly, is it our responsibility to to have a balanced have a balanced diet? Do you when you when you spend time thinking about this, do you have a particular sounds so simple a particular solution in mind where you think, okay, if we could achieve this, then this problem would go away, get better? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, I would point out that I do think it's up to regulators, and I think it should be the responsibility of the media but I have zero faith in the fact that they'll actually do anything about it. So therefore, we have to take um, ownership and control of that. And that's why we do what we do. We need to communicate powerful stories and engaging and entertaining, but also thought-provoking ways that people can change their information diet. Like a great one that we often talk about is, you know, Twitter. Um, follow people from all over the world, from different countries and continents, different races, different sexual orientations, even both sides of the political aisle, to get a much more balanced version of the news and information out there. Because most people just follow people they like, their own political party, and then of course all the, the, new, the bad news headlines. And that creates a very distorted view of the world. So simple things like that I think are quite powerful. Understanding on Facebook when you, you know, when uh, Voldemort, the head of the U.S. Uh, administration, was first elected. I freaked out being an American and just kept clicking on it. Then my entire feed was, you know, Voldemort. And I really had to think about stopping that and within a month retrain the feed and then it was just all good news, science stories and that type of thing. So I think it's really about personal ownership of the issue. I would really love to see modern news media come in with a smoker's warning, like the same way that tobacco does. So in the same way that a generation ago we realized that smoking was bad for us and we started banning smoking in some places. And then we also said if you do want to smoke, you should just be very aware that what you're about to do has a, a deleterious physical effect on you. Um, bad news media has a deleterious physical effect on you. When you read bad news, it has a physiological effect. Your heart rate goes up and your sweat output increases. And they've shown that if you consume bad news over time, um, depression rates increase, um, people become less productive. Uh, it actually is bad for your health. 
So I would love the news media to come. I would love the regulators to say, look, you're allowed to put in seven bad news stories, but could you please counterbalance them with seven good news stories? Uh, of course, that's dangerous because you can't really regulate the media. Um, but I, it would be a lovely idea. Or say, this is potentially bad for your health. Um, you're welcome to consume this, but just please be aware that it's bad for your health. And if you would like an alternative to see some good news from around the world, um, here are some alternative options. It, it just made me think how new all of this, especially social media and algorithms. I mean, we're, we're so new at it. You know, how many people would even know that everything they click on retrains the algorithm to show you more of that? And even when we know, how often do we, how often do we think about it? Mm. So even if there was a warning at the, on your computer or on your mobile phone that said, you know, you, you are training the information, the echo chamber review, you are training the, this every day to feed you certain types of information. Mm, I think we're getting there. Social media is only 5,000 days old. Is it 5,000 days old? Yeah, we've only just started it. And the human species is going, whoa, hold on. That, whoa, that's, that was a bit intense. Um, hold on, can we just have a reconfiguration and have a bit of a think about it? Um, talking about the impact of bad news, I'm going to keep... I'm going to keep us going. Talk about the impact. Tana, you had your own epiphany. You were, uh, I'm going to make sure I get this right. You won a US national mountain biking title and you were heading for a career as a professional cyclist. Mm. And you had an injury that brought that career to an end. Can you pick up the story from there? Yeah, I was, I mean, I used to love mountain biking. It was the reason I got up in the morning. But then I ended up um, fracturing some vertebrae and some disc issues. And so that all came to a screeching halt. Um, yeah, obviously was pretty devastated. But, you know, as many things in life, if one door closed, many more open. So I actually began to heal, focused a bit more on biology and, this, you know, bring out the science nerd in me. And then actually, to be honest, said, screw this and went sailing after I finished college. My parents were going. So I spent um, about a year on a boat going from Ecuador to uh, New Zealand, where my dad's from. And along the way, happened upon, um, in the Cook Islands, they knew I was a science nerd. They're like, you're a science geek. You love marine biology. They're doing a whale dissection. Um, so I went to go check it out, just as an observer. And it was hot and stinky and pretty gross, and a lot of the volunteers gave up, so I offered to help, um, and over three days di uh, dissected this whale to figure out why it had beached itself, and I professed my love of marine biology to this woman, uh, Dr. Darlene Kenton from Harvard, and she was like, you know, that's great, but it's an incredibly saturated field, and you know, you'll probably end up doing your PhD on a sea sponge or something like that. So she said, if you study something like genetics, the code of life, you can apply it to any facet within biology. Um, and then, yeah, I sort of then did hospitality for quite a long time, um, but then refocused my energy and went back with that idea to read the code of life. And so that's what I do now, right? machine learning and AI algorithms to do that um, and to figure out genetic changes that cause a particular cancer, monitor relapse and remission and th uh, the effects of therapy, and then also help identify genetic targets for new, new drugs. But I, lo I love doing that, but I also found this massive gap between science and the hard research and public's understanding of it. I could go up and tell you all about the incredible research, and this is what scientists do. And there's a massive, there's like science has a PR problem because they don't have good communicators. And so while I love the science, I thought I'm not the smartest kid on the block, but I do have a skill of storytelling and the EQ sort of emotional quotient skills. And with Gus, you know, wanted to tell a better story about science to get more funding, to get the incredible research out there, people aware of that. So that was one of the goals with Future Crunch as well. That was one of the epiphanies. You've said that data is the new oil. Mm. Data and digital information now generate more economic growth than the entire global goods trade. Yeah. So, you know, if code is the, you know, the most influential fuel, and I know you've, you've talked about that there's three reasons for that, that code is now the most influential fuel, mm. more, more influential than oil, more influential than coal. What are the three reasons? So the first is, that, so in the language of economics, they say it has a triple zero set of qualities, which makes it very different from a traditional product, good or service. So the first is zero marginal cost of production. So once you've built a piece of code, costs you nothing to create another one. You can just copy and paste it as many times as you want. I mean, how cool is that? It's the same whether you create one 
or one million, it costs the same. And the second is um, zero, or zero friction of distribution. So once we have a piece of code, it costs me the same whether I send it to the, your phone across the room or to Brazil or Buenos Aires. You don't have to worry about tariff wars, supply chain costs. You just need to press a button and send it across. And the final triple zero is zero latency of updating. So once you've built a new and improved piece of code that comes along, you get access to it immediately. The software updates automatically. Um, so it's kind of like thinking about it. Take a car, for example. If you bought a Volkswagen Beetle 15 years ago, with enough updates and changes and improvements, it turned into a Ferrari. That's why code is so powerful. In fact, we like to say it's more like an idea because once I share an idea with you, we both have a copy of it. And I think a good way for also people to remember is that life does pretty well, and we're actually fundamentally built on code. Instead of zeros and ones, we have four letters, our DNA, and that creates us from the atomic level up. And so, I mean, our success as a species has to do with the fact that we continue to spread that code in more and more efficient manners. I mean, luckily, being a human, we quite enjoy when we do it, but that has also led to the success and our domination of the planet. Yeah. So, you know, if the, if, if the influence used to belong to, you know, the oil barons, and then it went on to belong to the, the wolves, of, wolves of Wall Street, and now it belongs to the coders, how has that changed the landscape? You know, is that why is that a cause for optimism? I think um, it's an interesting one. What's happened is that the geeks, in a very short space of time, have scaled the heights of the global economy. The in the top ten most valuable companies in the world now, seven of them are tech companies. Two of those are tech companies from China. It's an incredible change in a very short space of time. A decade ago, there was only one tech company in the top ten, Microsoft. Now in the top 10, there are seven. Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, Tencent, and Alibaba. What's happened is they've become so powerful so quickly um, that technology has kind of almost got ahead of them. And I think that they're starting, we're starting to now understand, the geeks in particular are starting to understand that they've maybe gone too far. Um, we're now starting to get into social issues, social kickback. We're seeing a big backlash against big tech at the moment globally. I mean, there's... Goodness knows how many billboards out there from Facebook at the moment. <laughs> exactly. So All what's happened, I think, yeah, the geeks have gone, whoa, hold on. Um, it turns out that uh, our ideas about how the world worked and what people wanted to code to do are not actually what the world wanted. And the reason for that is because we came at it from a very undiverse place. Um, there happened to be a bunch of Silicon Valley, um, mostly affluent, Western educated, mostly white, mostly male programmers that built these things. And when they went out to 2 billion, 3 billion people, of course, human beings are infinitely complex, incredible systems of social, cultural, political, um, sort of different fractures that have happened. The reason that I have optimism is that I think more than any other group that's been at the top of the global economy before, the geeks have the ability to, for self-reflection and the ability to change. And they're a lot nicer than the crews that have come before that. Now, they're not perfect. But I think what the geeks are doing now is they're having a long, hard think about what they've done and they're saying, how can we improve this? So we're seeing backlashes from the employees, for example, in Amazon, Google, and Facebook, internal revolutions against some of the products that they're building and saying, hold on, we don't want to do that. We're seeing an increasing conversation around diversity to say if we're going to be building algorithms that affect everything about people's lives, those algorithms need to be built by more diverse teams and more diverse crews. Now, they haven't got that right yet, but there's a big global conversation going on around it. And I think that we're starting to move to a much more just and equitable distribution of that. I think it's going to take a little while and it's going to be a bit ugly, um, but I do feel like it's improving. And I think the number one thing, number one reason I have optimism for code and data is because unlike oil, a centralized, hoardable, just you can grab heaps of barrels of it and just sit on top of it, you know, with your, I don't know, guns or whatever. Uh, data is a lot cheaper and a lot more accessible. And now there are more than 4 billion people, more of half of society is online. And so you have access to it. And that's incredible. You have access to these algorithms, AI, to help you, you know, um, for your farmers. There are apps out there. If you've got a smartphone, 3 billion people on the planet, over 100 billion small-scale farmers. Now there's an app that you... 100 billion? What's that? 100 billion? Sorry. No, 1 billion. Yeah. Not 100 billion. Uh, 
Yes, one billion. And you take a photo of your plant and it will diagnose disease and tell you exactly what you need to do um, with accuracy of the world's best agronomists. And so I think because of the accessibility and the decentralized nature of technology, that's why I think it's so powerful. I mean, there are only five and a half billion people over the planet of the age of 15. Five billion already have phones. And most of them are connected to the greatest information resource humanity has ever had, the internet. And we're also, most of today's people get educated. So 94% of children now learn to read and write in the year 2018. A generation ago, that was only five out of 10. So we're moving to a world where everyone's connected, where everyone can read and write. And what that means is that we've got one to two billion new minds entering the global conversation to say, what are we doing as a species? How do we move this forward? One to two billion new ideas around how we can make things better for human beings. You know, I'd never, I'd literally never thought about that before. That not everybody, in terms of a fuel, if we look at, if we look at, you know, those that have the most fuel tend to do the best on, on every level. And if oil is a fuel, has been the primary fuel, not everybody can refine oil. No. You know, not everybody can, can build a mine. However, anybody can learn to code. That's right. From an early age, anybody can learn to code. And so you're right, the accessibility of that from a diversity point of view, but also from a being able to take care of yourself. Yeah, exactly. And access to information. You know, you're talking about mm. education, education there. You don't need to be able to afford books now. You don't really need to be able to afford an education. You can watch a, a Harvard lecture exactly. on YouTube. So this isn't a question I had, I had pre-prepared, but where you add that many minds, that many perspectives, that much diversity into a system, does it get more confused, more chaotic, more unable to come up with coherent solutions, or does it get better equipped? Mm, hashtag choose both. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's necessarily better equipped, but depending on, I think, adding diversity in minds and ideas on a scale of billions is a really good good thing. It's definitely going to get be confusing, and it's more chaotic and more complex. But I mean, one of the fundamental rules of the universe is it's getting more chaotic and complex and, you know, it's growing. And complexity leads to stuff like, through evolution, like human brains. So I think we can use this global connectivity to create much, much better thought patterns and much better tools and ways to exponentially expand our knowledge. And that gives me great optimism. I think there's going to be some hangovers like the social media issues and teething issues, but I don't think it's going to unravel the entire planet. But... Uh, in certain pockets, it'll be an issue, but I think the vast majority of having brilliant ideas and more of them is a good idea. I like to think about it like a wildflower meadow. Um, if you look at a wildflower meadow and then you look at a, a field of um, single crops, the field of single crops looks a lot nicer. It's a lot more predictable. Um, it's a monoculture. So you have those beautiful straight rows of green that go for miles and miles. You know when you drive past them and it looks so great? Um, but it turns out that if you have a disease, it can wipe out the entire crop. Um, it spreads very quickly. If you look at a wildflower meadow, um, in some ways it's not maybe as pleasing to the eye. It's a bit chaotic. There's different species everywhere. There's tens of thousands of species, all sorts of stuff. But a wildflower meadow has far more animals. It's got a much greater biodiversity and it changes effortlessly with the seasons. So when it gets cold, when it gets hot, when there's some kind of disaster, that wildflower meadow is able to adapt and to evolve. And so I think that for me is that metaphor of diversity. I'd much rather live in a global society that looks like the wildflower meadow rather than a global society which until now is mostly being what it is which is that monoculture and so i think in the wildflower meadow it looks a bit more chaotic you know suddenly you've got far-right candidates in brazil and you've got um demagogues moving up here and you've got um crazy social credit systems in china but then you've also got incredible other solutions happening all the time so it becomes a lot more chaotic a lot more diverse but ultimately i think a lot better for humanity in the long run I remember somebody defining evolution for me once, and that was basically what they said, that, you know, evolution is the movement towards complexity. Mm. So, you know, we start as a single cell organism, we evolve, we become more and more complex in our system, more and more complex in our cognition. And so in that sense, you know, going back to the, the points that you've made, mm. the more complex it becomes almost... The, the more guaranteed we are that we're evolving in one way, shape, or form. Yeah, resilience. We become resilient yeah. and adaptable rather than predictable and certain. And closed. And closed.
let's talk very briefly about AI. Uh, Tana, I think it was you that said that AI will not replace people. People who use it will replace those that do not. Mm. So my question is, if AI is being developed by human judgment, if we are building AI from a position of um, sometimes from fear, sometimes from positivity, but as we've said, you know, fear as a mind virus spreads a lot more quickly. We have the opportunity or danger of building AI in our own image. Yes. Simply just replicating the judgments and biases that we already have. My question is, what's the, is there any way around that? Is that inevitable? Uh, no, I don't think it's inevitable. I think, you know, it touches on what Gus was talking about earlier, diversity. Um, if we have diverse teams creating AI, I think they'll be much more resilient to human bias. Everyone is afraid of AI and it might be biased and, you know, it might take over the world. No, it's, it's reflecting our own biases. So it could actually be used as a tool to uncover human bias. Um, I think it's, that is a powerful way because it can actually sh remove our biases and highlight them. Um, and in many cases, that has been true. Um, from Silicon Valley, you know, many of the AI algorithms, like they'll train it on Reddit feeds and then it becomes racist and angry and stuff like that. It's because you're giving it biased data. So hang on, so you're saying that they will plug an, an AI into a Reddit feed. Yeah, and to, train it. To build, use, use that as a source of information. Yeah. And it becomes racist, angry, on the basis of everything that it's reading. Yeah, exactly. And so we need to be very careful about what data we feed it. Um, so diversity in data. Uh, and diversity in the people who are, who are implementing the technology. You can't think of an AI that's going to scale to a billion people for benefit if it's you know a group group of old white men in a boardroom. You're going to need all the genders, sexual orientations, religious context, political views, and that is the way you you create a, a less biased um, form of the technology. And and back to your earlier point about it's not the humans you know versus the machines, it's not the, it's the humans and the machines. It's about being smart about how to use these tools to augment our skills and not replace them. I mean, there are heaps of examples of algorithms out there that are better at dermatologists than discovering skin cancer, um, or you know, reading brain scans to diagnose Alzheimer's nine years before doctors can. So are all medical technicians and radiologists gonna be out of a job? Well, the world's, one of the world's best radiologists, I love what he has to say, Professor Curtis Langlotz, he makes this comment when asked about the AI and robots stealing all our jobs. Yeah, artificial intelligence isn't going to place radiologists, but those who do it will replace those who don't. And radiologists flip that with whatever you want. And I think that's a very powerful way to look at it. You need to engage with the material, especially in a world that's highly complex and competitive in the business world. You need to jump, dive in and get your head around these tools because that's the way you're going to stay competitive and also in your own life you can automate a bunch of the boring crap that we do in the admin and the spreadsheet data entry and stuff which i think is a, a bright future I'm, i'll be glad not to do that kind of stuff anymore mm. so some of let's talk about some of the good news stories because you know we've the whole idea behind this interview was to talk about intelligent optimism and why there's an absolute basis. As you said, the bad news is, is rare and, and the good news is more of the trend. I've, I mean, I've got a list here that I would love you guys to expand on. We've got, you know, autonomous vehicles, facial recognition in Delhi, um, language barriers. I don't know enough about them to tell those stories. Can you tell some of those? It's, um, maybe we should start with the Delhi story. It's one of our favorite examples of being attracted to fear and then not actually seeing the stories where it's used for good. Yeah, because in China, you know, they're getting facial recognition software and glasses, the police, social credit system. Um, you know, it's this dystopian idea, the worst nightmares of Orwell and Huxley. You know, we, many people have seen Black Mirror and they like to ask us questions about it in our you know, presentations. We know where this ends, right? But mo most people did not hear about Delhi. The police there got uh, facial recognition software. The first thing they did was they went out to all the orphanages and took photos of the kids and then uploaded a database of all the city's missing children and in four days tracked down 3,000 of them. 3,000? 3,000 3, in, 3, in, in four days. That had been missing, reuniting many of them with their families in the first time in years. That's incredible. 
And so it's, yeah, we, we miss those incredible stories. We're so focused on the negative stuff. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite is we often get asked, you know the trolley problem with, self, with driverless cars? There's a trolley problem. Oh, it's so it's philosophy majors that have made this cars, There's a thing of saying, if we give control of the car to an algorithm, then what happens if the car is plummeting down a hill and it can turn right and kill five people who are walking across the road, but then if it turns left, it kills a child who's, oh, sorry, a granny in a trolley. or It's some variation of that. Basically, the car has to make a choice. Um, does it kill five or does it kill one? And it's 50-50 of, of each one. And they say, this is a classic example. How can we make a machine make that decision? There's no ethics involved in it. Um, what they don't talk about in the story is that self-driving cars are 10 times safer than human beings behind the wheel already. And self-driving cars have driven 60 million kilometers on the roads worldwide. Um, the world's leading self-driving car company, Waymo, is testing more than 10 million kilometers a day now in virtual environments, throwing every conceivable situation that they can throw at the car to make sure that when it's released into the wild, when it becomes consumer-ready, that it's actually fit for purpose and it doesn't kill people. So when we move into a world of self-driving cars, it's still going to take a while. Um, road deaths are going to decrease drastically. We kill 1.36 million people every year as a result of humans behind the wheel because we text behind the wheel, because we maybe you know are talking to someone else and we get distracted. So in a world where we have 10 times less deaths from self-driving cars, uh, that means that we're saving millions of lives every year. If we then get a very, very rare one in a million situation where the car has to choose between the five people one way or the one person the other way, I don't actually care which way the car chooses um, because overall we're saving way more lives anyway. And I think what it is is that classic example of the media saying, let's look at the worst case scenario and talk about that and let's not look at the case of saving millions of lives as a result of that technology. Now, you both really believe in the importance of optimistic storytelling. I think we've, we've covered that from a variety of different angles. Um, do you have... Any tips, any practical tips for other people who are wanting to use optimistic storytelling to build an intelligently optimistic movement of their own? Yeah, I think for me, you know, sort of this, this fight for getting good news back into balance is much more difficult than pushing negative. So I think if it's, it's really important that if you want to tell great stories and good news stories, it's keep your facts sacred. I think Gus and I would have been dead from the word go with Future Crunch if we really didn't spend a lot of time making sure what we said was accurate. Um, I, that's what I would say. Yeah, if we you had a saying that said everything has to be gold-plated evidence. Mm -hmm. Double peer-reviewed. If anyone ever challenges you, you can back it to the hills. Um, it meant that no one could ever pick a hole. They could pick a hole in our opinion, but they could never pick a hole in our facts. And I think just from observation, from having looked at the work that you do and, and spent very enjoyable hours watching your videos, something that you do from the outside, which is something that I'm a big fan of, is you, you out-contribute. I mean, we were talking about groups that you have where you, you give a lot and you charge a small fee, but you, you donate that fee just mm. so that you're, you know, people have buy-in. you you're very dedicated to out-contributing. And I think if you're trying to spread good news stories, that becomes doubly as important because mm. as we've said, it's very easy to get someone's attention with outrage. It's very easy yeah. to get someone's attention with bad news. But with good news, you almost need to double down, mm. like double down on the effort, double down on the frequency. Mm. And that's quite, that's quite a commitment. It's not a commitment that many people would make. So my thanks and congratulations on the commitment that you've made to do the work that you do. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank yeah, you. It's a, um, thanks, it's a terrible business model, but we love doing it. <laughs> well, there's your next challenge. Yeah. I was about, to, it's just funny, I was about to say, isn't that the story of um, of doing good? But no, that's an unhelpful story. So there's the, yeah. to scale the, to scale the helpful. Mm. That's yeah. an interesting challenge. So... You've, you've said intelligence isn't what you know, it's how you think. And you both believe we make a choice not to lose our sense of hope, that that's an actual conscious mm. choice that we make to not give in to fear. Just quickly, how is that, what's the largest impact that that's made on your own lives? 
I often wake up in the morning smiling. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, we were hanging out with a friend yesterday who's who's working with Future Crunch, and he'd been off of it for a while, um, and not, you know, following the news that he does music with us, and he, he's a lovely guy, but noticed he was a bit depressed and it turned out that he had been just focusing on all the negative news stuff and he was like actually noticeably different and slouched over and stuff. I think it has a really, really distinct effect on your biology, your stress hormones, you know, systemic inflammation. And one of the best things is it makes you a lot more popular at dinner parties. <laughs> you're not just the, you know, ranting, complaining, you know, person. That you're actually providing useful information um, and it makes people feel good. Um, and, you know, even if we screw up with climate change and everything, at the end of the world, I guarantee I want to be partying with the people who are like, yes, we gave it all we got. Well done. Sorry it didn't work out. Rather than the people who are like, I told you so. Yeah, it, it allows me to look at the world and take it all in. Um, I mean, we're not saying that the world's a perfect place. Many things are going wrong for humanity. You know, climate change, environmental degradation, political and religious extremism. And it's also true that some of the stories we talk about haven't reached everyone. Far too many people still live in extreme poverty. Six million children still die unnecessarily every year of preventable diseases. And hundreds of millions of people can't access the basic freedoms that, you know, the three of us all take for granted. Uh, but you have to be able to hold two ideas in your head at once. And this is Hans Rosening's famous quote. And um, he's one of our heroes. He says, you know, the world is getting better and the world isn't good enough yet. And by cultivating an attitude of intelligent optimism, by confronting the cynics who tell us the world cannot change, I'm able to hold both of those ideas in my head at once. I can hashtag choose both. And I can look at the bad news stories and accept them and take them in and engage with them. But then I can look at the good news and say, hey, we can do this. We can move forward um, and we can move into a prosperous 21st century that works for everyone and for everything. I'm going to skip to the final question now, which you might have just answered, which is if I could give you a stage and in front of you, I could put every single person that you would ever want to influence. And I gave you a microphone in five minutes. What's the what's the one thing? What's the one thing you would want them to know? I think one of the most powerful tools is to listen, to really listen to people. Because that will in turn come out in your own stories, but also you get an empathetic, compassionate view of the world, the people around you, and understand what's going on for them, and potentially even how to fix it. So listening is the best key, I, th I think, as a lifelong skill. And for example, if we listen to our planet, um, if we listen to nature um, and understand our effects we have on it and all the animals and the plants and each other, I think we'll be much better off. I think for me, it, it always comes down to love. Uh, love is the thing that binds all human beings. I think love allows us to knit ourselves together. It's the social fabric that kind of binds humanity. Um, Love is something that technology can never replace. It can. It's not something that, uh, you know, it, it's it's the glue that exists all around us. And I think if we can cultivate an attitude of love uh, towards the planet, love towards other human beings, that allows that optimism to sit in place. Um, and love allows you to hold the bad news and the good news equally, um, and and understand that um, you know that it's possible to to possibly pull this off. Um, and if it, we're not going to pull it off, at least we're going to give it a really, really good try. You just got me thinking about the the definition of that. You know, in order to weigh it up, and you, am I am I doing this or am I not? In that sense, would you say that love is the the ability to hold the space of of wanting and believing in the very best for somebody? I think so, yeah, it's the ability to see the best in someone. Right, when we love someone, we see the best version of them. And if I love humanity then i see the best version of humanity and i can promote the best stories of humanity and talk about what humanity is actually capable of and that allows me to then accept the bad parts of humanity as well it also helps us spread our code it also helps <laughs> it does it helps us to spread the dna <laughs> thank you Tana. sorry <laughs> it's true I, I have so many things in my head to say about tinder right now i'm just gonna, I'm gonna leave it so <laughs> thank you Thank you for, for coming on the podcast. Thank you for making the time. Thank you for the work that you do and the, and the space the space that you are holding. It's been such a pleasure.
yeah, it's always great to chat to you. Yeah, thanks for having us, Julie. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, if you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com pop in your email address it is free we will not spam you but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas tools and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work it's called the influencer code it's not long but it is full of value so download it keep it share it juice it for all it is worth I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.